Anyways, welcome. <laughs> Tell you a quick story about a, uh, a lady who had invited some people over for company. Uh, they were eating dinner at her house, and she was a little bit frazzled and stressed out by everything. So a lot of people coming over, and the pastor was coming over, and she was a little bit uh, kind of stressed out. So she had to clean and cook and get all these things ready. And finally, she got it all together. And she was just in no position to to want to pray for the meal. And and so she said to her four-year-old daughter, she said, hey, would you pray for the meal? And she said, mommy, I don't know how to pray. And she said, well, all you have to do is say, dear God, and then say what mommy says. And she said, okay. She said, let's pray together. And she said, dear God, why in the world did I invite all these people over? It kind of stinks when in-house stuff gets aired to the guests, doesn't it? (laughs) Uh, But sadly, sometimes that has to happen. I know we've got a lot of guests here, but we've got to deal with some in-house things today uh, because people are wondering and because I think it has far-reaching implications. Uh, What am I talking about? Uh, We're part of a denomination, uh, as Chungmin said, for better or for worse, called the Presbyterian Church, United States of America, that's made some decisions at a national level over the past couple weeks that have caused ripple effects throughout the church community and being the largest Presbyterian body, the PCUSA, um, it's getting a lot of press and a lot of airwaves. And so people are asking, well, what's going on with our church in relation to all this? Um, so let me back up for a second and to enter into it together with all of you, some who are aware and some who are not. The General Assembly, which is the uh, national governing body of our denomination, made some decisions over the past couple weeks um, that have implications for same-sex marriage. The first one being that as of effective as of the General Assembly two weeks ago, that our ministers are now able to, authorized to, marry same-sex couples if that is legal in the laws of the state in which they're serving. That's the first thing, effective immediately. The second thing was a proposed amendment to the Constitution of our denomination saying that we will now redefine marriage no longer as man and woman, but as two people, comma, traditionally a man and a woman, and on and on and on and on, to open the doors, to redefine marriage as being two people committed to one another. And obviously from the outset, you begin to hear that this is opening up a Pandora's box of potential possibilities. As long as two people are committed to each other, it could be a man and a family member. It could be a man and a man. It could be a woman. It's opening up so many different possibilities. So where do we stand? This is what people are asking. And that's what I want to address today. The first thing I need to say is we are heavy-hearted and saddened and grieved. My heart sank when I heard about this. I mean, the handwriting, in a sense, was on the wall. But this is the reality of the world and of the denomination in which we live right now, in which we find ourselves. And so how did it get to this point. How did it get to this point? I think fundamentally the issue is an issue not of anything other than the authority of the Word of God in the life of the believer and the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Is Jesus Christ really Lord? And if He is, what does that mean? As you can see up there, that's what we're talking about today. I want to talk about the Word of God and the authority of Jesus Christ as Lord. We're going to read just a few verses from Luke chapter 6. And I know that some of y'all are here and you're like, man, I don't care about this. I'm not in the PCUSA. 
I want to try and make it as broad as possible so that the implications of lordship in our lives are applicable and are practical and are visible here regardless of what denomination we find ourselves in, regardless of how we feel about uh, same-gender marriages, regardless of how we feel about same-sex attraction and homosexuality. So Luke chapter 6, we're going to read starting in verse 46 to the end of the chapter. This is God's word, and this is what Jesus says. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? I'll show you what he's like, who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. He's like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid a foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house but couldn't shake it because it was well built. Verse 49 says, but the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. This is God's word. What is Jesus saying about the nature of his lordship? What is he saying? If we want to, if we really, and, and I know a lot of us in here, if you've been, if you've grown up in church, if you have been baptized, if you walk down an aisle or said a prayer at some point, you probably say that Jesus Christ is the Lord of my life. Jesus is the Lord of life. What does that mean at a very practical and at a very basic level? What does that mean? Three thoughts that I want to pull out from here that talk about what it means that Jesus Christ is Lord. So kind of a litmus test for us, as it I'm sure has been in the weeks uh, and will be in the weeks to come for our denomination. But the first thing is he can't be Lord if we don't know what he says. His Lordship implies that we know what he says. I don't know if that's what it says on what, what the fill in the blank is. Um, we have to know what he says. Right? We have to know what he says. Verse 46, he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? The presupposition is that you know what he says. <laughs> you can't follow him as Lord if you don't know what he says. So we have to know what he says. Uh, my idea of Lordship not in a spiritual sense, not in a religious sense, but in a, in a very broad sense, came early on when I was watching Saturday morning cartoons. You guys watch Saturday morning cartoons? Uh, now they're pretty much on every day, but back in the day, they used to only come on Saturday morning in wrestling and Saved by the Bell. But Saturday morning cartoons would watch them, and there's always this plot line, this storyline that would run throughout many of these cartoons. Not the like funny, silly ones, but the diabolical superhero ones. There was always a guy, a villain, intent on destroying the world, intent on world domination. You know, you know cartoons like that. And he would, all, he would never do the work until it came to the very end. It was either a cartoon or a kung fu movie, maybe something like that. But it always happens one way where the villain is trying to destroy the rest of the world, the bad guys, everybody who's against him. Or her. And instead of doing all of the work, he would have minions to come and do his bidding. And the way that he would call them was either he would yell at them and they would come scurrying along, or he would snap his fingers and they would come along and then they would say, Yes, boss. And he would say, Okay, this is what you got to do. You need to go to this person and this person and steal this person's wife so that we can uh, hold her hostage. And they're like, Yes, boss, certainly. And then they would go off and they would do it. And I, as I was watching that, I began to understand that this is the idea of lordship. 
This is the idea of what it is to be a master. This is what, what it is to be, the, uh, to be a mafia boss, to be a godfather, is you say something and then your minions come running to you and then they do whatever it is that you're telling them to do. This is lordship. That whatever the master says, the people who call that person master or lord would do those things. But the presupposition is that they have to know what he says. If we don't know what the person is saying, then we run into a lot of issues, don't we? Olivia in college had a friend. He looked like Elvis. So they called him Elvis. So this guy, Elvis, one day got really hungry late at night, as college students are prone to do. And so he drove through the drive through at McDonald's, and he pulled up to the counter at 11 o'clock or 12 o'clock, and he ordered, and he said, I would like a number two meal. And the lady responded back to him, and she said, which is? And he responded back and said, the quarter pounder. And she said, which is? And he said, uh, the number two, the extra value meal with Coke. She said, okay, which is? And he's like, uh, I don't understand what you're saying. I'd like a quarter pounder meal with Coke. The French fries that come with it, it's Three ninety nine or whatever it is, that's what I'd like. And she says, okay, which is? And so he's arguing with her. He's fighting with her. And he's like, I don't know what you're saying. She's like, you want a quarter pounder. Do you want cheese with that? He could <laughs> I should have done the witch's brew one. <laughs> Do you want... <laughs> It's hard to respond to a person if you don't know what they're saying. How do you respond to the Lordship of Jesus Christ if you don't know His Word? Fundamentally, I think this is where our denomination has gone astray. Don't know what the Word of God says. I mentioned this last week, but our senior pastor stood up on the floor of our presbytery, Central Florida, years ago while this debate was raging on. Some people are saying, yeah, you should let uh, same-sex um, pastors be ordained. And others are saying, no, you shouldn't. It's, it's against the word of God. And, and so our senior pastor in his broken English stood up and he said, I don't know much English, but in my Bible, which is written in English, it says that homosexuality is a sin. So if you guys would please just learn some English. And then he sat down. And some people applauded him. Other people were like, did we just hear what we just thought we heard? And he said, David, I did good job. That was good. Very good. Excellent. Because the word of God. I believe that the word of God, and many believe that the word of God is clear in its teaching about homosexuality. Now, I, need, I want to distinguish something here um, because there is confusion and because we're not really taught about this. The Bible does seem to make a distinction between those who have homosexual tendencies and homosexual attraction, same-sex attraction. Seems to make a distinction between that temptation versus those who act out on that temptation. There's a difference between the attraction 
and the action. In the same way that I may be attracted to someone of the opposite gender, it's not sinful unless until I begin to act out on that in an inappropriate way with someone who's not my wife. In the same way, there is a distinction between being tempted or having these feelings versus acting out on those feelings. And it's when we act out on those that the Bible considers that to be a sin. In the same way, some people may say, for as long as I can remember, I've had these feelings. The reality is that for some people, for all of us, all of us are born into the world as sinful people with a proclivity and a tendency towards sin, but that does not give us the freedom of reign to say, I will act out on those sinful desires. So this is a distinction that needs to be made. And once we make that distinction, the Bible is clear that the actions that we take, that homosexuals take in same sex uh, to, to do actions together, acting out on that desire, according to Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, Judges 19, uh, 1 Timothy 1, Romans 1, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, these passages are clear that the homosexual act to act upon those desires is a sinful thing. But it's not just those things. N.T. Wright, he's a, he's a scholar, an author, he's a, a, a rector out in, in, uh, in England, did some very insightful, very insightful research and study. And here's one of the things that he says. He says, when you look back at, at creation, the creation account, it says, in the beginning, when God creates everything good, in the beginning, God created the what and the what? He creates the heavens and the earth. In a good world, these are opposites, binaries, which if you read throughout Genesis, these binaries are extremely important and play a huge role. The heavens and the earth. He separates, distinguishes between day and night, light and darkness, sky and sea, sea and land. These polar opposites. And at the very end of it all, he creates male and female. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, and he blessed it. And he said, this is my good creation. At the beginning of the world, in a world that is good, you have complementary pairs, polar opposites, binaries that work together to properly function and to keep this world running properly. At the end of time, you have the same thing in a renewed sense. You have the new heavens and the new earth. And the sign of that new creation that God has made it all right is that there will be a marriage between a bride and her bridegroom. From the beginning of time until the end, this is the way that God has ordained it. For a proper functioning of our world, these binaries are important and are completely orderly in the way that God has created them. It's not just, you know, some people use this argument in the garden, it was Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, which is right, but it, it's more nuanced than that. That's the way that God created for the proper functioning of the world and of the universe in which we live. We've got to see that. We've got to understand it. Because you see so many times, and it's not, even the, not only the issue of, of same-sex attraction and homosexuality, but in every area of our lives. Isn't it true that if the word of God is not the authority in our lives, that something else is going to be? So what are we basing our decisions in life about? If it's not the word of God, we will base our decisions. How, how unloving is it for you to say that two people who are in love with each other should not be married? 
That's what they say for the sake of what? Political correctness, civil rights, equal rights. If the word of God is not our authority, then political uh, correctness is going to rule our decision. Our feelings. Well, it just feels right. How many times have you done things that felt right, but at the end of the day you realize we're so wrong? How many times you felt like this was the right person, only to realize that they weren't? They're some crazy, psycho, stalker, nutty person. And how many times have we gone with the flu? You know, it was Nikita, Kru- Nikita it was Khrushchev who said back in the day, you know, this is the way history is rolling, and if you don't roll with the punches, you're going to get crushed. Gave rise to communism in Russia. Right, we can't blindly go with the flow and with the culture of our of, of uh, can't blindly go with the flow of culture. We can't just go with what media is telling us. We can't just go with what everyone else is doing. Just because it's legal doesn't mean it's right. We've seen that with abortion, in 1973. We've seen that in so many different ways. Just because it's legal doesn't mean that it's right or honoring, or beneficial, or comes under the lordship of Jesus Christ. This is the first thing. We've got to know what he says. Second thing, we have to do what he says. And not only know what he says, we've got to do what he says. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? A lot of us may know, but we don't do what he says. That's the issue. Some people, some people within our denomination, some people as we live life as a, as a Christian, we know what he says, but we just choose not to obey. My, my, we've got a son, Elijah, and for the, for the most part, he's a pretty good boy. And by most, I mean 51% of the time, he's a good boy. The other 49%, he's a little bit crazy. We tell him to do something. Hey, Elijah, come here. We'll give you candy. He comes running as fast as he can, and he's like smiling. He's a good boy, and he does whatever we ask him to do. Elijah, let's go play outside. He's like, yes, and he runs, and he not only gets his shoes, but he brings our shoes to where we are, tries to put them on our feet so that we can go. So for the most part, he's a good boy. But there are other times where he realizes, you know what? I don't want to do what you say. I hear what you're saying. I know what you're saying. I don't want to do it. So, yeah, last night, uh, Dane and Seho got married. A uh, week and a half before they got married, we did our last premarital counseling session. It's a big one. Talk about sex. We talk about all kinds of important things. And so we needed to make sure that the kids were in bed. So said, hey, listen, why don't you guys come over at 10 o'clock at night, put the kids to bed, and then we'll have some quiet time to just talk about and, and just process through these important final things as we get to talking about marriage. So in order to make sure that Elijah and Manny were in bed, I had to brief them. I said, Elijah, listen to me. He's two years old. So Elijah, listen to me. Listen to me. He's like fiddling around doing stuff. I said, Elijah, look. Look at daddy. Look at daddy. He looked at me. I said, tonight you need to sleep. Okay? He says, yes. Elijah, you need to put your pajamas on. You can't cry. If you do this, daddy's going to give you candy tomorrow. He's like, candy, candy. Yes, yes, I'll do it. All right, get him ready, brush his teeth, and then uh, singing song, praying for him, and then putting him down. We're like, Elijah, you've got to sleep. You've got to sleep right now. He's like, yes. Okay, okay. that means, Elijah, don't get out of your bed. Okay, yes. Don't come out of the room. Don't go on top of Manny, your sister's bed. Don't go on top of her bed. He says, yes. 
don't talk to Manny. Right? Don't fiddle around. Don't mess around. Just sit there and go to sleep. He said, yes. Okay. Close the door, and I walk out, waiting for Jane and Seho to come. A few minutes later, they quietly walk in, and Elijah and Manny hear the door, and they're so excited. And all of a sudden, their thoughts are spinning of all the things that they can do. Last time, they took them on a walk. They gave them ice cream, and so they're really excited. It's like late at night. So they come into the room. We sit at our big brown table, and we're about to talk, and then we hear the pitter-patter of little boys' feet on our laminate floor. So I'm thinking, well, that sounds like Elijah. And so we go to check, and then as soon as we get up and walk over there, we hear the pitter-patter of feet running away. Maybe it wasn't Elijah. Maybe it was we're just hearing things. He wasn't there. So we get, we get back, and, hey, so uh, how's it going? Got a week and a half left. You got stretched. You know, right now we're doing great. And then we hear the feet again. And this is kind of strange, like Elijah. And then we hear the pitter-patter of feet go back inside. It's happened about three or four times, and then finally, I went over, and I caught him in the act. I said, Elijah, and he's like giggling, and he's laughing, and you should have been in bed sleeping a long time ago. I said, Elijah, go to sleep. He's like, yes, and then he goes in, he jumps in his bed. Like, all right, I'm so sorry, and I I must have apologized to him like 15 times that night, and then even afterwards, I'm so sorry, because Jane's usually in bed by 10 o'clock, 10.30. I said, okay, now, uh, where were we? We're talking. And then we hear the footsteps again. I'm like, ah, God, I'm so sorry. Wait here. So I run over there, and I say, Elijah. I think really deep down, he just wants to see the new, about-to-be-married couple. All right, Elijah, come over here. And so he runs, and he's, like, so happy, and he jumps into my arms, and he's, like, waving and talking to Jane and Seho and saying all of, using all of his eight-word vocabulary that he can and, and saying hi and all of this stuff. And he's realized that he's conquered the mountain that is daddy. And I gave in. Why? Why is, it, why is it that he's so good at obeying with certain things, but with other things he's so bad? It's the same reason that you and I do the same with the word of God, isn't it? Because we think about will obedience in this particular situation be to my benefit? Or will it be to my harm? Will it give me benefit and blessing? Or will it rob me of benefit and blessing? And a lot of times we see it from a very narrow-minded perspective. I think a lot of times what we do is we see this like, you know, like, so a few weeks ago, uh, one of our church members had a birthday party at, a, at an Asian buffet. And so we went. And I went by myself with, uh, not, Olivia wasn't there. She was with our, our baby. So I took the two older kids and I was, obviously, I had to be a responsible dad, and so I got them their food, and I brought their food back to their table, and someone said, hey, D.L., your plate is really brown. And so I, I thought, what does that mean? Is that a euphemism for something? What does she mean that the plate is really brown? I looked at it, and I, I think she just meant what she meant. The plate was really brown. It was a white plate, but there was brown General Tso's chicken on it. There was brown, like, or reddish barbecued spare ribs there. There was brown Kung Pao chicken. There was brown beef with broccoli without the broccoli, so it was just beef there. And so she said, your plate is really brown. You're going to feed that to your kids? And I said, yeah, you know, this is the wonder of a buffet. You get what you want. I didn't want the colorful stuff on my kid's plate, nor did I want it on my own plate. You see, the beauty (laughs) of a buffet is fatal when it comes to reading the Word of God. 
can't really pick and choose when it comes to God's Word. What we want on our plate and what we don't want on our plate. But we do that, don't we? I know that I do this. I know that our denomination does this. I know that there was a guy that Jesus talked to a long time ago. The Bible says he's a rich young ruler. He did all of these things that was commanded in the Bible, but Jesus came and said, one thing you're not doing, one thing you're not doing, sell everything you've got and give it away and and follow me. And it says that he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. And I think that's a lot of how we as Christians live today too. You say, you know what, God, I'll give you my Sunday. Or my Monday to Saturday. You know what? All right, I'll give you my Sunday through Thursday. How's that? But Friday night, Saturday night, just leave those to me. Let me do what I want to do. God, I'll give you my soda for Lent, but let me keep my alcohol. I'll give you my friendships, but let me keep my sexual uh, relationships. I'll give you everything, but let me keep my money. I'll give you most of my time, but not all of my time. Don't we do this sometimes? And if we don't do what he says, can he really be the Lord? I think it was D.L. Moody who said, if Jesus Christ is not Lord of all in my life, then he's not Lord at all in my life. He can't be 90% Lord. He can't be 80% Lord. He can't be 99.44% Lord. He's not Lord of all. He's not Lord at all. We can't pick and choose. A few uh, months back, I preached a series called The Christian's Guide to the Galaxy, First Peter. It, basically, it's, it's not a feel-good message. It's talking about the fact that we're living in enemy territory. 2,000 years ago, it was true, and it's still true. It's even more true now than it has been at any generation that we've known says we're aliens and strangers in this life. The basic message is that we're not living in Israel anymore. We're living in Babylon. We're not the moral majority anymore. We are the missional minority, and we need courage. I pray this for my kids all the time. I pray this for us, that we'd be people of courage. Because we're not in the majority anymore. The world is against us. Even in this issue of homosexuality, you can believe whatever you want, but as soon as you bring the Bible, they say, don't talk about it. You're a bigot. We're living in a post-Christian world. And as I was preaching about this, we need to be prepared to suffer for the sake of Christ. We need to be prepared to suffer for the sake of the gospel. There's a family that had been attending our church, and they said, uh, a word got to me through someone else. They said, you know what? Uh, DL's messages have changed. They're guilt-ridden and fear-mongering now. And I... I, I, I thought about it, and I prayed about it, and I asked some people about it, and I came to the conclusion that the message of First Peter is a resounding alarm of urgency to awaken to the need of the day. If there was a fire in our building, we wouldn't make jokes and laugh and, and, and mosey along and let people get burned in the fire. If it was a love song, a love story, we would preach it as such. If it was a parable of celebration, we would teach it as such. But in a message of of alarm, it is my pastoral responsibility and fidelity to the word of God and to the God before whom I made a covenant that I would preach the word of God and nothing else. 
We cannot pick and choose what we want to believe in the word of God and what we don't. What we want to keep and what we want to discard. If we do, we would not be able to say that Jesus Christ is the Lord of my life. In what areas of our lives have we surrendered the Lordship to someone other than Jesus? What area of our lives is Jesus asking? I've got your living room. I've got your dining room. You open it up to house church. That's great. But I want your bedroom. That's what I want. I don't know, man. God, I I want to give you my bedroom. I don't want to give you the things I do in there. I want to give that to you. What areas of your life are you holding on to? I give you my nine to five, but let my night times, happy hour starts then. Let that be for me. Jesus Christ isn't Lord of all. He's not Lord at all. We've got to know what he says. We've got to do what he says. Lastly, if we don't, we need to be prepared to face the consequences. If we don't, we need to be prepared to face the consequences. Why does Jesus give us commands in the Bible, some of them which are very difficult? You hear this all the time, but he gives it to us for the same reason that a parent gives commands to his children. Commands that they don't quite understand a lot of times. I always wondered growing up why preachers would always give this illustration. They say, if a child wanted to touch a hot stove, would a parent let them? No, they tell them not to touch the hot stove because it will burn them. The kid doesn't know that. They think it's just for fun. I always wonder, why do they always mention a hot stove? <laughs> right? Have you heard that before? No? Yeah? Okay. And then we had Manny, and I realized why. Because she's always wanting to touch a hot stove, and she got burned by it one I realized it again, second time over when Elijah was born. He's always wanting to turn on the stove, and he's always wanting to touch a hot toaster oven. Why do we tell him not to do that? Not because, Elijah, no, we want you to be so miserable and so sad, and I know you want to touch that, but it's going to, touching it is going to give you this exhilarating rush of joy and life and energy. Don't touch it. No. The commands of a parent, of a loving parent, are the same as the commands of God. It's meant to preserve and to protect and ultimately to provide for our joy. And if we reject the Lordship of Jesus Christ, then we have to be prepared to face the consequences. What are the consequences here? Verse 49, the one who hears my words and doesn't put them into practice, like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. Here we go. The moment the torrent struck that house, It collapsed, and its destruction was complete. That's a consequence. The collapse, the destruction. Sin will keep you from this book, but this book will keep you from sin. This is what D.L. Moody also said. Every time you see a culture in degeneration, every time you see a life in degeneration, every time you see a church in degeneration, moral, spiritual decay It's because they've wandered away from the word of God. And the consequences of such, according to Luke, is that there will be collapse, there will be destruction. For the rich young ruler, three different places in the Gospels, it says when he heard what Jesus said he needed to do, it says he walked away sad. Because he could not do what Jesus had asked him to do. There are consequences 
the, the Lordship of Christ to preserve and protect is like a shelter over our lives. When we fall away from the Lordship of Christ, we remove ourselves from that preservation, that protection, from the provision, and we open ourselves up to the hurt and the pain and the consequences and the devastation that can come when we're not living under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It's unloving, we hear, that you would prevent two people, same gender, who love each other, from being married. Let me just share some thoughts from the Center for Disease Control and let you make your own decision on why Jesus and the Word of God says, why the Word of God says that homosexuality and acting on it is sinful. There's a book written by um, a man. It's called Homosexuality and the Politics of uh, homosexual in the politics of something or other. I forget. He was a, a scholar at Yale, studied at Yale, Harvard, MIT. He cited research done by two homosexual men who interviewed 156 same-gender couples. And it, this basically illustrates the compulsive and addictive nature of acting out on same-sex relationships. Out of 156, he said only seven of them had remained faithful to one another. Over 50% have had multiple, I, I forgot the number, eight, over 80 partners, more than half, who've acted out. Um, he said of the 100 who had been together for more than five years, none of them had been faithful to one another. Right? Not just in the area of fidelity and, the, and, the, uh, and the, the tug and the pull and the addictive nature of that attraction. Cancer. Homosexual men across the board Higher rates, not just higher risk, but higher rates of anal, liver, lung cancer. For women, breast and ovarian cancer. Higher, higher uh, rates, higher incidences. 50% uh, more likely to be severely depressed. 200% higher chance of suicide. Syphilis, 46 times higher rates for homosexual men. 71 times higher for women. We could go on and on and on. Two in 2009, 2% 2 of the United States population, 2% were homosexual men, but 61% of infected HIV people were homosexual men. 2%. There's a reason why homosexual men are the only people who are not allowed to give blood, to be blood donors. The lifespan, average lifespan of a homosexual person, 24 years lower than of a heterosexual. Now listen to these numbers. Listen to these numbers and say, is it really loving to say, yeah, go ahead, have your way. Do whatever you want to do. To me, that's not loving. And yes, yeah, some people in our family have condemned homosexuals and have, have, have slandered them and said bad things, but that doesn't mean that the loving thing to do then is to let them do what they want to do. If we get so riled up about telling people, you need to exercise, you need to get in shape, you need to stop smoking. Why? Because of the higher rate of health disease. Then how can we celebrate a patently harmful lifestyle and celebrate it for the sake of equal rights? It doesn't make any sense. And the reason why the Word of God tells us that these things are forbidden. It's not arbitrary. It's because it's protecting and providing for the people who will surrender themselves under the Lordship of Christ. 
And you know that we could go on and on. And I'm talking about this because these are the issues in our day. But we could go on and on and on and on about this in a completely different sense. In same sex, an opposite gender, in heterosexual relationships. Yeah, we could go on and on and on and on about that. We could go on and on about uh, the, the, the deadly effects of anger, of greed, of pride, of money. And you've seen studies done about all of these things as well. And so it goes back to the question again. What area of our lives have we left unsurrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Because if we do, then we need to be prepared to experience the consequences of our actions. What does it mean that Jesus Christ is Lord? That all of our lives, nothing less would be surrendered to Him. Because the reality is, every single one of us will have a Lord. Something is going to dictate our lives. Something in our lives is going to tell us to do something, and we will say, yes, boss, certainly. It may be your feelings. It may be yourself. It may be your pride. It may be that girl. It may be that guy. It may be money. It is going to be something. Something is going to be the Lord over our lives. And all of them are going to whip you like a taskmaster and say, you need to get in line. And it will promise you that it will do something for you. But if that Lord is not God, then there will be consequences to our actions. What does it mean that Jesus is Lord? That means for us there will be consequences also. It means that there might be consequences because you see in Romans 10 writing to a similar time where homosexuality was prevalent in the Roman Empire, where it was in some places celebrated, in, in a place where sexual immorality was going through the roof, in a place where to be a Christian was not only unpopular, it meant that you could be killed. Paul writes to the church in Rome, he says, if you believe in your heart, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. What did it mean for them? It meant standing in the face of a Roman Empire that was dead set against them, whose mantra for every believer, for every citizen of the Roman Empire, was Caesar is Lord. To stand up and to say Jesus is Lord was subversive to the empire. And for many of our forefathers in the faith, they gave their lives for the sake of the Lordship of Christ. Why? Because they too knew that every Lord will demand something from our lives, but only one Lord, only one Lord will take away from us and give to us. What does he mean by that? It was Jesus Christ, the Lord of Lords. He came into our world, and he's the one who knew the word of God, who lived the word of God. In his moment of temptation, it was the word of God that he quoted. He was the one who built this house upon a rock. When a flood came, torrents struck that house, but could not shake it because it was so well built. That was Jesus. And yet on the cross, for the sake of you and me, for the sake of those who struggle with same-sex attraction, for those who struggle with opposite gender attraction, for those who struggle with anger, for those who struggle with pride, for those who struggle with this thing and that thing, with every person, Jesus Christ came and he took 
the collapse that we deserve so that our house could stand strong in him because Jesus is our cornerstone for God. Because of that, men and women of the Roman Empire, citizens of the kingdom of God, could stand up and say, you know what, though none go with me, still I will follow Jesus Christ as Lord. Though it may be unpopular for me to live for Christ, I will stand courageously. Though everything is against me, though I may be scorned and ridiculed and mocked and, and made fun of, still I will stand for Christ. In the midst of a world in which I am no longer the majority, I am the minority, I will still stand for Jesus Christ. The cross and all of its shame and all of its disgrace and all of its scorn ever before me, the world and all of its pleasures ever behind me, still I will follow because I believe that Jesus Christ is more than enough for me. This is what it means. This is what it means when we say Jesus Christ is Lord. We believe that he is eminently and supremely worth it, worth every, every ounce of, of trust that we have. We believe every fiber of our being, even though our friends ridicule us, even though our friends leave us, that he's still worthy. And if we had a thousand lives, we would give it over and over and over because he's done that for us. This is what it means that he's Lord. We pray that we would see pray together. We just take a moment to respond to God's word. Maybe there are some ready applications that come to mind. God, I need to study your word. I can't just go with my feelings. My heart is deceitful. You can't just go with the flow. If I go with the flow in a world against the Lord God, then Jesus will never be Lord of my life. Maybe there's areas of your life where you've not surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Maybe you've tasted some of the consequences of that already. Maybe today God is warning you. Hey, come back to me. I'm the only Lord who loves you the way that you need to be loved, the way you deserve, the way you desire to be loved. Come back to me. My arms are open wide today. Come back. Maybe some of us, we just need to declare again, Jesus, be my Lord. Jesus, be my Lord. I'm sorry I've strayed from you. Take my heart. Take my life. It's all for you. It's all for you. Let's pray for a moment right now. If there's, you want to pray for other people right now too who, Without judging them, you just feel like, man, my heart breaks for them. They need the Lord. They need the gospel. Let's pray for them as well as pray for ourselves. Just pray for a couple moments, and then I'll pray. We'll continue to worship the Lord through our response of song and offering. Let's pray together for a moment with us. of your love because of your grace 
You're the Lord of lords, and yet you laid down your life, Jesus, for us in humble submission to the will of God in order that we might have life. We dare not stand on our righteousness, on our record, on our good doing. Trust completely in you because you've done that for us and given us a righteousness that comes from outside ourselves that doesn't come from us. We give ourselves to you. Pray that you would be our Lord, Lord of our lives, Lord of our church, Lord of our denomination. To be the Lord of it all, take your rightful place on the throne. Help us to live each day, each moment from here on out, surrender to your Lordship joyfully, gladly, tasting the fruit of a surrendered life. Thank you. We love you because you've loved us first. We pray these things in Jesus' name.